the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to today's podcast, sponsored by Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale at Hillsdale.edu. I encourage you to take advantage of the many free online courses there. And, of course, to listen to the Hillsdale Dialogues, all of them at Q for Hillsdale.com, or just Google Apple, iTunes, and Hillsdale. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt, live inside the Beltway, joined from Israel by Haviv Redig-Gur. Good morning, Haviv. I greatly appreciate your joining me this morning. Welcome to the Hugh Hewitt Show. Thank you for having me, Hugh. It's good to be here. Uh, years ago, Stephanie, our mutual friend, recommended that you come on, but I've had Ambassador Oren all these years from Israel, and I didn't think I needed a second. But after listening to you on Dan Senor's podcast and on the Times of Israel podcast, I said, I got to talk to this guy myself. You're really quite remarkable, Habib. Will you tell the audience how long you've been doing this for? You are with the Times of Israel. You're their political correspondent, their conflicts correspondent. But give them a little background if it's the first time they've heard you. Um, I've been in journalism since 2005. I actually got my first job in journalism during the disengagement from Gaza. Um, and uh, mostly English language journalism. Um, English is my second language, but I spent some childhood years, quite a few in the United States. Um, that's it. I'm born and raised in Jerusalem, um, served in the army, uh, pretty much done, done journalism since college. I have appreciated your calm, but very blunt assessment of everything. And I have seven, eight questions in 33 minutes to do it. So I'm going to get at it. First, your assessment of the hostage release negotiation that is proceeding that was approved by the cabinet 35 to 3 last night on the recommendation of the IDF, Mossad and Shin Bet. Yes, um, there are a few things we need to understand about this, um, this deal. The first thing, the government voted overwhelmingly. I think it was 35 to 3. Um, cabinet members have voted overwhelmingly to accept it. They voted to accept it, including some people whose initial public reaction, they put out press releases when it was first announced a day or two ago, uh, was to reject it. And the reason was that um, the commander, the, the security services that you just mentioned, all said that, in fact, it would also help Israeli security. Um, we're talking about getting out the most sensitive of the hostages, children uh, and their mothers, uh, there was an Israeli demand that was accepted by Hamas. Again, accepted by Hamas doesn't mean much. We have to see if it's implemented. But that was accepted by Hamas not to split up families. So far, when Hamas did release a couple of, uh, of uh, hostages at the beginning, they left family members inside. They, they tried to keep as many families as possible as part of the campaign on the government, the pressure campaign, because that's, of course, what they're holding the hostages for. So um, Hamas released together. Um, and... My assessment is that the great, overwhelming, overpowering question hanging over this um, is that is is will it be easy to get back to the war? Because if this is an end to the war, if this is the beginning of a much larger international campaign, then that's a disaster. Every okay. single security service has said absolutely. I am confident that it is, and so I am very much in support of this deal. All right, now, Haviv, I want to go from that 
to your podcast yesterday, The Times of Israel. It was the very best assessment of what Israel thinks about the world. And I've been repeating it. But when you explain that Zionists just don't give a damn what other people think about what they're doing and when Israelis just don't care about world opinion because their opinion of what a Jew is and does is not going to change. It hit me between the You're exactly right. Would you explain that to people? Why maybe Israel's terrible public diplomacy is actually good public diplomacy? Yeah, um, it doesn't come from bravado. Uh, it's not because we're so brave and courageous and macho uh, and tall and handsome. Obviously, we are, but that's not that's not where it comes from. Um, but where where it comes from is is something very deep. The Zionist movement is a response, beginning about 140 years ago, to the fact that nothing Jews ever did, nowhere Jews ever turned, seemed to be safe for them. They became capitalists and anti-communists and. They were accused of being rapacious capitalists. And when they became communists, because communism promised equality and to solve all the world's problems, they were accused of being secret capitalists. And accused, I mean, by the top leadership of wherever they were, not accused by some, you know, random uh, bigot. And everywhere they turned, certainly in 20th century Europe, um, they found that they were not enough. Um, In modern America, I have sat on Zoom calls with Jewish college students, very nervous ones. I I couldn't help them much. I'm not an American, despite the accent. I, I, I have never been on an American college campus as a student. But what I heard from them was to... Um, to the left, you know, we're not white enough and to, and uh, excuse me, we're too white. And to the particular kind of bigot that sits on the far right, we're not white enough. And I don't know how white I should be to just feel comfortable. Right. And, and it's, and that is such a classic Jewish statement from the 20th century. It's a shame it's still being said in the 21st. Zionism's response to that was basically to say, you can't be enough. What the anti-Semite is doing with you, it has nothing to do with you, the real Jew. With an anti-Semite does with you is turn you into the cartoon they need to work through for their own, you know, their own insanity. And so ignore them. Do not justify yourself because you can never win. Israel now in Gaza faces a war that is unlike any war any army has ever faced. There has there have been standing armies um, that Hamas is not a standing army. It's also not quite a terror group. Because it controls territory, it has dug in in ways that ISIS never could in Mosul, for example, uh, and it, it has so it has features of a standing army, but it also has features of a terror group, and nobody has quite solved this problem, this problem called Hamas, and Israel's now trying to, and the world will say it's a terrible thing. The world doesn't offer us better solutions, other ways to uproot Hamas from within Gaza, and so the Israelis genuinely feel like um, the hatred is not something they can control. And so they ignore it, just like Zionists have done for 140 years. Now, Habib, I'm an Irish Catholic Zionist, and you're going to find bunches of different Zionists running all over America because we believe in Israel and we believe in its absolute right to exist. And as Dr. Arn told me yesterday, if it doesn't have a right to exist, none of the countries of the Middle East have a right to exist because they were all formed after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. But we're never going to explain that to anyone. And I found myself asking myself, I want to ask you, in the adult population, or the population 16 and older, how many minds can actually be changed on this issue? Or do people arrive at adulthood with an opinion that can no longer be moved and we just have to accept it? You mean in the West, in the United yes. States or around the world? In the West, especially in the United States. 
My impression of it is that there are diehard, um, you know, uh, people who feel deep affinity and loyalty to one side. Those are a minority on all sides. Um, and most people are, are just regular people going around about their day. And if something happens, something is sort of put on their agenda, the images coming out of Gaza of civilian suffering, for example, that will tilt them, not powerfully, gently, slowly, that will tilt them in one direction or another, because it just seems common sense that that's the kind of thing that shouldn't happen. Most people are winnable, is my impression. Most people can be convinced at all ages. Um, Israel's bad at making the case. Israel's bad at actually clarifying just how horrible Hamas is. You know, I have a list um, of probably 15 reports by Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch, all of whom have now been harshly critical of Israel, of the bombing of a hospital and things like that, in which a Human Rights Watch lays out that some hospitals that ISIS took over are legitimate military targets, because that's what international law says. If the military force on the other side takes over the hospital for military reasons, purposes, um, then it is a legitimate target. And B, uh, reports that are damning against Hamas for tormenting, oppressing uh, Palestinians, for enacting a kind of Sharia rule in Gaza that's absolutely horrifying. This is an Amnesty International report from about eight years ago. It's not, you know, ancient history. Um, all that stuff Israel has not sent said to the world. In other words, yes, Palestinians will suffer terribly. Hamas is forcing us. It isn't just forcing us to go through Gaza's civilian population to pull it out. It is literally the only thing Hamas has been doing for 15 years, is building those bunkers under the civilian population. Every army in the world has some installations inside cities. Every army in the world has a, the Israeli army headquarters are in the middle of Tel Aviv. But Hamas is a force where 100% of its military infrastructure, 100% of its fighters, 100% of its rocket launchers are inside civilian populations, next to schools, next to hospitals intentionally. And so we, we need to say that and we need to show it. And we have intelligence and we have our enemies have been saying that against Hamas for decades. We're bad at saying that. But I think that kind of thing would be convincing if people really grasped it, if they understood what was happening on the ground. Now, NBC polling, and I saw the crosstabs and I believe it, shows that 70 percent of Democrats, traditionally the party of the greatest support for Israel, but that's no longer the case. 70% of Democrats under the age of 34 are critical of President Biden's handling of the Gaza situation. Now, that's a big envelope. That can mean a lot of different things. It could probably maybe mean they don't think he's strong enough, but I doubt it. What do you think that number portends for American support for Israel in the future? I think conventional wisdom says that um, Israel is losing the Democratic Party. Um I think that um, if that's true, that would be very sad. I happen to really like um, America. I, 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 you know, <laughs> Israelis speak Hebrew amongst themselves. They, they're, they're very provincial people. They don't know how much the American discussion of them, what, what's happening in it, how it looks. I, I sometimes I like to tell people that when President uh, Obama was elected, um, he had 70 percent approval in Israel. The day he was elected, he hadn't yet done anything. But Israelis loved him. And then when President Trump was elected, he had 70 percent approval in Israel <laughs> and he had yet to do anything. Israelis are, are just a small people. They speak their own language, right? They don't speak amongst themselves in English or listen in on the conversation overseas. And they love America as a very sort of general impulse, a general sense. 
Um, and they're not even aware of the culture wars within America. But, but you know, if we do lose the Democrats, that'd be very sad. But I hate to say it to people who think, that, you know, on the other side, that that's a very exciting prospect. It won't change much. President Biden just now had a choice. His choice was to let Israel prosecute its war against Hamas with the absolute imminent threat of a massive escalation by Hezbollah and Iran or without it. To prosecute that war with America, making demands as the war progresses, demands that Israel is listening to because it is shipping over the missiles we need, because it is helping us with Iran for the moment, or not listen to the Americans because it's not doing those things. President Biden doesn't get to decide Israeli policy. And if, if, if you know young Democrats think that because Biden is supporting Israel in one way or another, that's why Israel's fighting this war. It's the exact opposite. Israel's fighting a much more careful war, is my estimation. I think it would be fighting a careful war, but it wouldn't be fighting a careful war to the extent that Secretary Blinken wants if America wasn't backing Israel at the same time, if that wasn't part of the consideration for the war. So if you think this war is too aggressive and that's why you don't like President Biden, you misunderstand what President Biden is doing. Uh, Habib, I want my audience to understand. I don't like Democrats to win election. I'm a partisan Republican, but I don't want the Democratic Party to stop supporting Israel because Israel is part of the West and our Democratic ally. And when blows come, Israel will have our back and we will have Israel's back ally. That's the name of Dr. Oren's book. So when I see 70 percent of young Democrats, I worry that this virus on the left that is anti-Semitic in part and anti-West in whole, is deeply embedded. And I think it's dangerous for me. I think it's dangerous for you. I think it's dangerous for everyone who believes in the West. Do you agree with that assessment? I'll, I'll say this, I think is absolutely true for Israelis. Israelis will love America, not because America gave us some weapon that, you know, every missile America is currently selling us, we know how to build. Uh. Uh, Israelis love America because the American world order is the world in which we want to live. The post-war order, not the Soviet one, the other one, is the world that should exist. It is the world, you know, you now you see a lot of, there are a lot of Muslims in the West, Muslim immigrants to the West, who are all protesting the war now in Muslim capitals. Well, why are they in the West? They're in the West because it's better to be in the West. It's better for ordinary people who want to raise good families, happy families, to live in the West. That West and that world order of safety, maritime safety, general safety, we've just gone through a period, there's a slight uptick in wars lately in the last five, 10 years, but we've just gone through the safest period in the history of humanity. That is the American-led world order. And Israelis love that. So I'll put it real simple. If the left end of the Democratic Party, which if that's true about those kids, then it's not the edge anymore, right? But if the, if the Democratic Party's progressive edge takes over American politics and takes over American foreign policy, Israelis will still love that American world order. And there'll be a lot of bickering with the Americans about, you know, about just about everything else. In other words, that, that I don't think, I think it's unshakable. And that respect for America doesn't come from, you know, some, you know, I don't know what, um, distant sort of ideological principle. We live and breathe the part of the world that isn't fixed, that isn't the liberal world order that America leads. We appreciate it in a way that I don't know Americans can understand. I think that's exactly correct. I have a couple more things I want to ask you. The Iron Resolve, 
the implacability that you've talked about, both on the Times of Israel podcast and Call Me Back with Dan Senor. Do you think Americans understand the wellsprings of that resolve, part of which at least has got to be the trauma of losing 1,200 civilians and, and slaughtered massacre victims and 66 KIAs, or it might be higher. I haven't checked the number overnight, which in America would be about 2,000 KIAs in six weeks, which we have not experienced uh, maybe since Vietnam's worst week. Do you do you think Americans understand the iron will of Israel to persevere and achieve victory here? I hope so. I know that technically that's not an answer to your question, um, but if they don't, they will. Um, we're going into a four or five day ceasefire, depending how long Hamas holds up its end of the bargain. And then the war will resume. And what I think some people who want a ceasefire, permanent ceasefire, want to end the conflict, want Hamas to survive in the case of many of them. I think that um, they hope that this is an opportunity to up the pressure on Israel, to get images out of Gaza, to create a campaign that's even more intensive in case anyone's forgotten this war is going on, and to make that very costly for Israel to resume the war. Many Israelis are worried about that and think that it'll make resuming the war harder. I welcome it because the more pressure comes on Israel and the more Israel the more visible that pressure is when Israel nevertheless implacably resumes the war, the clearer the message will be to Hamas. And I need the Palestinian political world to understand what is happening. Israel will be implacable and and, and Hamas will not be allowed to rule Gaza. Uh, one of the things I have considered, Haviv, and I'm talking with Haviv Radigur, if you're just joining the conversation, uh, correspondent for the Times of Israel, interlocutor with Dan Senor on Call Me Back, uh, is the recognition that if Iran achieves a nuclear weapon, you have to assume they will use it or that they will give it to Hamas because what Hamas did was suicidal. And I'm afraid if they had weapons of mass destruction, they would use weapons of mass destruction. Is that your conclusion as well? My personal conclusion is that we can no longer pretend like there's any clarity that they won't. Um, on October 6th, the Israeli uh, government, the Israeli security services, Israeli intelligence, literally everyone, except for a very small handful of you know iconoclasts and critics who turned out to all be correct. But everybody, 99% of the Israeli security uh, echelons um, was convinced that Hamas was contained, that Hamas was deterred, that we understood their psychology perfectly. So much so that they had basically dismantled the defensive forces on the ground. Um, on October 8th, the Israelis understood that none of that was true. They had completely miscalculated the enemy, and therefore they can no longer trust in their own assessments of the enemy's psychology. And if that's true, if we misunderstood Hamas with catastrophic consequences, and we suddenly look north to Hezbollah, which has a much more powerful presence, much larger force, much larger ground forces, much larger missile arsenal, rocket arsenal, then Hezbollah can no longer be treated as deterred, which is how we thought of them for the last 17 years. And if that's true, you extend that to the Iranian-led militias in Syria, in Iraq, in Yemen, and you extend it to Iran itself. In other words, it, it is no longer, it is no longer a, a legitimate defensive doctrine to assume that the other side is deterred. And so I don't I don't know where that goes. I mean, I know where that goes in Lebanon with Hezbollah. Hezbollah is going, there's going to be a war. Um, I, I 
think Hezbollah will start it. Frankly, I hope Hezbollah will start it. It'll be politically more comfortable for Israel, but Israel can't live with that threat any longer. But uh, what it I means mean, for Iran, oh, yeah, much, much larger and more dangerous situation. Two more questions. I view the world as in two camps now, and it's Iran, Russia, and China, and China is the big dog, and they're running it, and they're subsidizing Russia, and they're buying oil from Iran, and they all have proxies, Hamas and Hezbollah and North Korea, and that the West is opposite them. But that's clarity on my part. Is that view widely shared? Because when I was last in Israel, when I talked to Dr. Oren, there was some ambivalence about the Chinese Communist Party and doing business with them. Is that ambivalence resolving into a recognition that they are not your friend? Um, I think the Israeli take is very close to what you're describing, but not exactly. The Israeli understanding, as I understand it, and there are many different voices in the Israeli debate, but the basic sort of mainstream Israeli understanding is China wants to disrupt the American um, leadership of the, essentially the American liberal world order. It, it wants yeah. to disrupt it um, in ways that are going to be harmful to a lot, a lot of people all over the world, a lot of nations, a lot of um, uh, the economy of the world. Um, China is not supporting Iran because it hates us. It's supporting Iran because it's trying to hurt America. We are caught in that great power crossfire. In that great power crossfire, we are very eager and happy to be extremely useful allies of the United States. In other words, most Israelis treat the China-America sort of renewal of the Cold War, we'll call it, um, as, as a clarifying point. If, for example, we're losing the Democratic Party, well, what's the next Democratic president going to do? Turn against us while Iran is in China's pocket? Um, so it, it is a clarifying and it helps us sustain the American relationship, which we do think is strategic and big and important and also emotionally important. Um, so it, it, we, why am I saying that? I'm saying that because over the years, Israel has not minded getting close with China. China's a huge market. China wants our tech. America has been very upset with some Israeli tech sales and has actually asked Israel to limit its tech sales, and Israel has done so. Um, but I think that that is becoming, we're more clearly in the American camp than in the past, and that America-China war is something that Israel understands now, and of course, obviously, is very much in the American camp. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolf. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. My last question has to do with Israeli politics. I have studiously avoided for a year commenting on the Supreme Court argument because I'm a constitutional law professor in the United States, and I don't care what foreigners think of our debates about our constitutional law and whether the court is off the rails or on the rail. I don't care what other people think because they don't know, and I don't know enough to have an opinion. But I've always liked Netanyahu and Likud running your country's politics. 
Here's my question. The political disagreements of the last year in Israel seem to me to be so deep that they cannot get out of the current argument about Hamas. That is, I hear in everyone's commentary some reflection of their view of Netanyahu and the court argument. Is it possible to get those separated for the period of the war ahead, or are they inextricably bound up? I don't think the specific content of that argument that really tore us apart right up until October 7th, I don't think anyone's talking about that anymore. Nobody's talking about the powers of the Supreme Court. But that was also ultimately a debate about trust. When the Likud party presented its judicial reform back in January, 70% of Israelis supported some kind of judicial reform. There is a problem of a very powerful court. We do have to sort out what its powers are, what they are, and work in other checks and balances, that whole question. By the time Likud was two months in, its support for judicial reform, for the government's judicial reform, was down to 25%. They had lost half of their own voters. And so they had mishandled, never mind the substance. On the substance, most people agree in Israel, huge numbers of the left agree that we need a judicial reform. By the time they were done with the way they had presented it, they had shed so much political capital and so much trust because of how horribly they handled it. Um, Netanyahu therefore went into this war with a huge trust deficit. He's also been the person who has been the most vocal in pushing the concept that Hamas is deterred and containable. And he owns it. He had a government in 2009 with the Labour Party, with Ehud Barak of the Labour Party, and he now has a government with the far-right, you know, religious Zionism and Otsmayodit parties. He has had governments, he has led governments over the last 14 years with the left and the right. And all the governments have the same Gaza policy. In other words, this is Netanyahu's Gaza policy. And so he walks in with a trust deficit from that fight, and he really, it does hang around his neck. And so there's a huge, you know, trust question. Um, you, we look at the polls. In the polls, um, Netanyahu plummeted to, I think, his uh, favorability for prime ministers at something like 20 percent. Um, his own voters are turning to other other leaders. So uh, it's not that we're fighting the judicial reform fight, but the trust that was shed by how poorly it was handled, and then the th- and then you know seeing how poorly Netanyahu's 15 years of Gaza policy essentially ended. That, I think, is affecting him and 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 uh, and is still part of our politics. I mean, that's the basic truth is that Netanyahu probably doesn't survive this war. That is my assumption as well. I, I don't make prediction about other countries politics. But my last follow up, Habib, and I was on the air for 10 hours on 9-11 and I had covered the Florida recount and the terrible Bush Gore controversy. And the country was so deeply divided on 9-10. And on 9-12, it was a rock. And Democrats and Republicans were standing in front of the Capitol singing, God bless America. And that lasted for about a year and through the next election. I am afraid I don't hear that in the Israeli commentary. And I wonder how broken is Israeli politics. So tell me, give me some good news on that, please, that it's not broken, that it's just Netanyahu and that Likud is not out, that it's not broken forever. No, uh, it's all good news on that narrow question. It's all good news. How much good news to the point where optimism levels are up in the last six weeks. Israelis are in this terrible traumatic war. 
360,000 people have been called up. About a half the fathers of my neighborhood are gone. Um, I spend a little bit of time in the reserves, but I'm very old now. I'm 42. <laughs> you know, younger men are doing that work. Um, and even though every family either knows somebody, every family, um, uh, we have friends who have kidnapped children in Gaza that we're hoping will be out in the next three or four days. Um, every family knows somebody in Israel. And even though the trauma is very real and profound, uh, we have this consistent survey that's been going for years of optimism and optimism is up. Now, why is optimism up to the vast majority of Israelis on the left, on the right, um, activists on all sides? We have rediscovered our strength. We have rediscovered our unity. Um, I read a wonderful op-ed in Arabic, uh, by, in an Arabic newspaper in the Galilee by an Arab-Israeli uh, journalist who said the Jews have been reminded of a century ago by how closely this matched pogroms of a century ago. And the Jews have been reminded where they came from. The unity we're seeing is astonishing. Incidentally, um, Arab-Israelis have Ram, the highest yes. rates of identification with Israel. 72%, absolutely. The Druze community, um, uh, the ultra-Orthodox community. It isn't just that hundreds of ultra-Orthodox Jews who did not believe religiously in military service have joined the army, have, have begged to volunteer for the army in the last six weeks. Hundreds of thousands, the entirety of the community, just about well over 90% of the community supports those few hundred. In other words, not all of them are suddenly going to rush to the army, but they all support in principle, and this is brand new, ultra-Orthodox serving in the army. So there's a sense of solidarity, uh, and it crosses ethnic lines and religious lines, and, and it's astonishing. Um, all of civil society has woken up. Our government is a little bit incompetent. Our politics have really declined and deteriorated. Everything else in Israel uh, was revealed to be strong and, and resilient and, and now unified in a way that I have never seen. On that note, I want to thank you again, Haviv Redigur. Follow him on X, the site formerly known as Twitter. Listen to him on the Times of Israel podcast and every Monday with Dan Senor. Please come back, Haviv. Stephanie was right. I was wrong years ago, and I continue to look forward to having you back. Thank you for joining me on a very, very important day in Israel's long and, and wonderful history. Thank you, Haviv Redigur. Thank you for having me. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Drive safely when you're on your way to grandmother's house today. I'm joined by Mary Catherine Ham. She of the Getting Hammered podcast with Vic Mattis. Good morning, Mary Catherine. Thank you for joining me. Uh, this morning, is probably you. the most difficult assessment I've, I've had to make for a government. And I really don't know what to say because the Israeli deal with Hamas is a literal deal with the devil, but it involves children. What do you think? Look, this is really hard because, uh, you know, there's, they're very, Israel in a way that we are not is very focused on getting hostages back and including and up to doing deals with the devil. Um, and my friend Jay Pod, who I listen to, Jay, John Tahoret, uh, explains that this is part of, uh, Jewish law and, uh, that it's in the Torah, that this is part of what they do. But it, it, it has such dangerous real-world consequences because it does incentivize taking hostages because Gilad Shalit resulted in, who was the Israeli Defense Forces soldier taken many years ago and was held for five years, resulted in the release of how many? A thousand. Uh, like, a lot, <laughs> yes. So yeah, it, it was it, a thousand. It worries, it worries me for this reason um, because I want so desperately for these people to be home uh, but what happens once they get home and Hamas 
if they're not destroyed, decides to do this again. Or just a, a freelancer decides to do it again. It incentivizes taking children. Yes. Specifically. And, and, but oh. then you are a mother. What would you be doing? What would I be doing as a grandfather? I'd be going crazy, right? I'd be I, marching. I'd be doing whatever I could. I know you'd be utterly desperate. I saw the, the, the comment from a woman has two, she has two daughters in, in Gaza, one very young and one about 15. And this one line got me, it will stick with me forever, where she said she wanted to go to Gaza. And she said she had seen a picture of her little daughter and she had a bandage that she had been injured. And she said, take me to Gaza so I can change her bandage. And that to me is exactly how I would feel because you want to care for them. You don't know where they are and you're willing to do anything, including and up to going to Gaza. So on a personal level, I understand that part of it and wanting to do almost anything. However, if you do almost anything from a, from a statecraft level, uh, what does that cause in the future? I, I, I just, I don't know. We're going to have to see what happens. I have Haviv Redigur coming on tomorrow, uh, at the bottom of the next hour. Have you been listening to Haviv during the course of this time? I have not, and I probably should. Well, he's on with Dan Senor every Monday, and he works for the Times of Israel. And he is not, I don't, I don't know where he is politically. I don't believe he's where you are or I am, but I think he is. Very, very reasonable. And he explained yesterday that on the Times of Israel podcast that Israel doesn't give a wink for international opinion. They're doing this because the Israeli cabinet recommended it and they heard from the IDF, Mossad and Shin Bet to do it. So I suppose there are things they might learn from this as well. Mary Catherine. Well, I want to have hope for that. And I also want to have hope that after this happens. You know, the objective of the war is to destroy Hamas. So if you do that, you're still going to be in danger because there will always be freelancers who are and lone wolves who want to come into the country and pull something like this. Um, but if they do not have the power that they had before and the organization that they had before, uh, perhaps there is less danger of this blowing back in those ways. And they get now, people out of it. I don't know. Let me also ask you about the most troubling thing I've seen. An NBC poll shows that 70 percent of Democrats under the age of 34 critical of Joe Biden's policy vis-a-vis Israel, and not because he's too too soft on Hamas, right? It's because he's too hard on Hamas. What does that tell you about the future of the Democratic Party? Yeah, look, this is the thing that, frankly, I'm surprised he hasn't knuckled under more than this by now. And I think, I think it's because Biden has sort of an old school default uh, Democrat position on Israel, which is fairly strong. But that is not going to be the default Democratic position on Israel in the future, uh, unless some minds and hearts are changed in an upcoming generation, because eventually these voters will be 40 and 50, right? Um, eventually they'll be in the administration. Yes. And I, I, I do think it's, uh, it's very, it's, frankly, it's disturbing. Uh, the, the kind of rhetoric that young people are susceptible to, that they don't think through these things, that they pretend sort of that the Palestinian people have not been offered states many, many times in the past. They sort of just like erase all of that um, and pretend as if they're not being accommodated. Well, Israel has attempted to accommodate them in many, many ways that almost no other nation on earth has ever tried to do for another people. Um, Alan Bloom predicted 30 years ago the closing of the American mind. I don't think he predicted the distorting of the young American mind. And I think that's what we've got. I think it's brainwashed. It, I, I hate to put bad motives on people or to, like, totally dismiss their positions, because, but these things do not seem thought through at all. 
They seem highly influenced by memes, which is not a great way to think about foreign policy. And I don't know how you start to claw that back, except to, in my case, teach my children very thoroughly about a moral right and wrong and not an oppressed versus oppressor. Uh, that's exactly. It's the oppressed oppressor framework, which is the filter through which everyone is seeing everything. And it is destroying the Democratic Party's reliability. I mean, destroying it. Mary Catherine Hamm, thank you. Glory America, bonjour, hi Canada. I'm Hugh Hewitt, live inside the Beltway, where I'm joined by my colleague at the Washington Post and the guy who edits Morning Jolt every morning from National Review, which you should be subscribed to, Jim Garrity. Good morning, Jim. Happy Thanksgiving on Thanksgiving Eve to you. Good morning, Hugh, on what is traditionally the most difficult travel day of the year, and which I will be heading up Interstate 95 to the Bucks County area of Pennsylvania. So if you're listening to this podcast, Get out of the left lane, please. I, Are I'm you nuts? Very soon. Are you crazy? This is where fam- the family lives. Kids have off school today. These, the, this is the life we have chosen, Hugh. Are you going to put duct tape over their mouths and tie them up in the back seat? I mean, that is insane. Uh, Hugh, they're teenagers. They just look at their phones and they, oh, that's true. they're okay. quiet for four or five They're not hours. small. Yeah. They're not small. All right. It's I want to start. Conversation that's now a, now a problem in the House. Speaking of near teenagers, in a new NBC poll, quote, the erosion for Biden is most pronounced among Democrats, a majority of whom, a majority of whom believe Israel has gone too far in its military action in Gaza. And among voters aged 18 to 34, with a whopping 70 percent of them disapproving of Biden's handling of the war. What does that tell you about the Democratic Party, Jim Garrity? One, there's a significant age split. Uh, I actually noticed some of the polls that came out this weekend. The NBC poll, uh, Quinnipiac, came a few days ago. You know, Biden's approval rating is actually evenly split amongst those 65 years and older. We have this perception of, you know, we, we have this perception of uh, older voters being Fox News watching Trump supporting Republicans. And a decent chunk of them are. Uh, but there are also elderly Democrats and those unsurprisingly, those over 65 probably don't feel quite as bad about a president who turned 81 than one who uh, that younger voters do. So, you know, Biden is the ultimate well-established brand name. And so I think there are a bunch of folks who give him the benefit of the doubt. Also note, uh, Biden's numbers amongst African-Americans are still very high. But, yeah, look, if the, the uh, Israel's war against Hamas is front and center in people's minds right now. And if, you know, while it's an exaggeration to say that everybody under age 30 or so is on TikTok and saying, hey, did you see this Bin Laden letter? Man, this guy makes a lot of sense. Um, You know, there's a decent chunk of them. And my guess is that if you are age 30 or under, you haven't heard much of the Israel side of Israel's side of, of, of the case for the war. And the massacre probably got forgotten within 20 minutes. And all you've seen is cover like all of the coverage out of the Gaza Strip. You would believe that Israel never hit a legitimate target. You would. We have no idea how the Hamas casualties are. You know, I figure they're pretty high. I, I figure Israel would not be agreeing to this ceasefire if it did not believe that it had accomplished, if not all, almost all, or a significant portion of what it wanted to achieve to this point. I assume they would not agree to this pause and this hostage exchange if they worried that some senior Hamas leadership was going to be able to slip away from northern Gaza to southern Gaza. So, I look, I look at this, and, you know, because everyone's instantly reacting to, oh, my goodness, what do you think of this, this pause? 
Well, I'm glad that there are going to be some happy reunions this Thanksgiving season for some of the hostages. Um, I think it's appalling, but, but, but characteristic that Hamas says, hey, we lost 10 kids. We don't know where they are. Palestinian Islamic Jihad might have them. They might have died immediately. We don't know. We, we can't tell you. Um, I mean, almost everything Hamas does is a war crime. And, and this is just one more step on this. And I think this is just further evidence. Like, look, there can be peace someday between the Israelis and the Palestinians. There can be peace someday between the Israelis and the Arabs, the Muslims. There cannot be peace between Israel and Hamas. And that is what this conflict is about. Uh, our distinguished colleague, David Ignatius, just this morning wrote this column saying that uh, it's four days and it's you know, kind of an f- option of a fifth day. And it can keep going as long as Hamas is willing to release more hostages. And he thinks that this could lead to a longer pause in the fighting. I wish I had David Ignatius's optimism, because I know from history, Hamas breaks a lot of ceasefires. My, my <laughs> suspicion is that the moment Hamas thinks they got an advantage, they'll take it. I just got done talking for a half hour with Haviv Redigur, who is sort of the David Ignatius of the Times of Israel. And I don't think he thinks that, but we'll see. What I'm worried about, this is a Sophie's Choice moment, right? I've never watched that movie because I can't stand the idea of making that choice. It's so awful. It makes my stomach turn. I don't know what to say. I'm just not going to judge Israel. It's their country. It's their people. It's their decision. I know there are some Americans in those tunnels, and I'm sure all the other foreign countries have input. I'm not going to criticize Israel. I am worried for the first time in my life about where the Democratic Party is headed because I don't want AOC to be the loyal opposition. I don't want Rashid Tlaib to be the future secretary of state. And people say, that's ridiculous. Look at how they voted against them. And I say, look at the young Democrats. We're losing a cohort of Democrats, not to the liberal side of the aisle. They're not my college roommates with whom I've been arguing for 45 years. They're far gone, Jim. Does that worry you? It does and it doesn't. Um, I, I wonder how much you get when, when, when a pollster calls up and says, who do you support? You know, you wonder what percentage uh, the people, the, the people who are willing to talk on the phone are the ones who have the strongest opinions, are the ones who want to tell a pollster, you know, why? Yes. You know, and when I think it was the NBC poll, they asked people, do you feel positively or negatively on the issue of Hamas? Only one percent said they felt fairly positive. Nobody said they felt strongly positive. The fairly negative or strongly negative was something like 81 percent. And so the segment of anybody who believes that they are pro Hamas is actually pretty darn small. Now, I know you feel like we hear them at all these rallies saying, ah, look at all. They killed all those hipsters in the desert and all that stuff. There is an extremely loud, obnoxious, effectively pro Hamas, you know, voice on campus and in certain, uh, you know, marching in the streets of certain American cities. I don't think that is representative of Generation Z. I think Generation Z just like they've always they've always seen Israel as the big bad villain and the Palestinians are the poor, innocent victims. And I think when something like the Hamas, ha- you know, uh, massacre, like you, you listen to the people who like when they're tearing down the posters of the missing Israelis, when somebody sticks around and says to them, why are you doing that? They insist it's not true. They insist that those people aren't really hostages, that this is all IDF propaganda. Like they, there really is some sort of psychological break from reality. Jim, I, I got I got to challenge you on that. The assistant secretary of education and head of the Office of Civil Rights there is the same assistant secretary of education and the head of Office of Civil Rights under Obama. On Thursday of last week, they announced seven investigations into anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. 
five into anti-Semitism on campus, two into Islamophobia. They missed Harvard, NYU, Northwestern, the University of California, San Diego, and the Department of Justice Division of Civil Rights has not brought one prosecution. They could have come in and sued in Los Angeles for the dead Jew in L.A. who was hit by Hamas supporter. I think the appointees in the next wave of the Democratic Party's dominance are going to be closer to AOC than they are going to be Ron Klain. Don't you worry about that? Oh, well, yeah, but that's one of the many reasons I'm not a Democrat. Um, <laughs> but I, I also really think we see in the uh, thinking of a lot of people in the Democratic Party, particularly the, the younger cohort. Islamophobia exists. We heard the story about that poor six-year-old kid who got yes. murdered by the land, right? You know, so both Islamophobia and anti-Semitism exist. We can argue about how severe each one of them are. I think it's safe to say, at least at this moment, that anti-Semitism is wider and more, you know, uh, you know, often more virulent. You have really terrible examples like that case in Michigan uh, of, of the poor kid. The, you know, the, one of those things, but there's some people, if you say, wow, I'm really worried about anti-Semitism right now, there is a segment, young people, generally on the left, who will say, but what about Islamophobia, right? There's this idea, if you mention one without mentioning the other, you have committed some sort of sin in their mind. You have downplayed the severity of one, or you have denied the existence of one, which you aren't. You know, we, we can be, our hearts are big enough to say, hey, nobody in this country should be targeted for their faith or ethnicity or anything like that. Nobody should be bullied. Nobody should be attacked. Nobody should be hit in the head and die because they went out to a rally and stood up for their rights, stood up for what they believe in. But there's this idea that if you acknowledge one and you don't mention the other, that somehow you are excusing or helping, that you're secretly pro-Islamophobia if you don't mention there's that. That's absurd and it's ridiculous. And part of like the grand, um, Years ago, might have been after appearing on your show, Hugh, somebody said that a lot of what I write sounds like I am on a ledge and I don't want to jump, but I'm handcuffed to somebody who does want to jump. And it's this constant negotiation with people who are really like you hear them talking about politics. It's not really about politics. They're working out. You're right. They're angry. Now, Jim, I got to let you go because you should have been on the 95 five hours ago. You should have been on the 95 yesterday. Safe travel to you, Jim Garrity. Safe travel to all the Garrities and a happy Thanksgiving. I greatly appreciate and am thankful for your participation on this. The Hugh Hewitt Show. Stay tuned, America. Bonjour. Hi, Canada. On this Wednesday before Thanksgiving, a happy Thanksgiving to our guest, Congressman Mike Gallagher, Chairman of the Select Committee on Engagement with the House, uh, on the House's Select Committee on Engagement with the Chinese Communist Party. Chairman Gallagher, I have an insane story about the biolab in California to talk to you about. But first, you've seen the reports about the deal with Hamas being made by the IDF on the recommendation of the IDF, Shinbet and Mossad and approved by the Israeli cabinet 35 to 3. What do you think of that? Well, first of all, I think everyone's relieved for the families of the 50 hostages who have the opportunity to be reunited with their loved ones. Um, That has to just be an incredible relief. I reviewed the footage with the Israeli embassy of the October 7th attack uh, last week when I was in D.C., and it's absolutely horrific. This is footage compiled from CCTV cameras, um, the GoPros that the terrorists were using, 
cell phones of victims and of the terrorists, it, it was probably the most horrifying thing I've ever seen. Um, and in some sense, I, I feel like a lot of Americans should be forced to see the true face of evil. And I've actually recommended to the Marine Corps that they work with the Israeli embassy to screen this footage for all second lieutenants at the basic school, because I think it's important to see the enemies that America and the free world faces. So obviously relieved for the families, I, I guess if I have concerns and, you know, it's not for me to micromanage the tactical decisions or strategic decisions of Israel, it's that um, that, you know, this is not a hostage for hostage release, right? This is hostages that Hamas took, including you know, they took hostages as young as nine months old in return for prisoners who stood trial in a legal system in Israel and were convicted for heinous crimes. We also have past case studies of, for example, the leader of Hamas in Gaza, Yaha Sinwar, who was released in 2011 in a deal for a Israeli uh, IDF soldier, Gilad Shalit. And obviously that's coming back to haunt Israel Perhaps the best thing you could say, and this is just pure speculation on my part, is that having consolidated its position in the north of Gaza, the timing actually works to Israel's advantage to have this pause right now as it pursues Hamas in the south. And I guess that's the overall point. This is not the end of it, right? We've we've had members of Congress, senators, officials in the Biden administration, and even the chairman of the Joint Chiefs express concerns with Israel as it attempts to wipe Hamas off the map, and I fear that undermines our ally and the right to defend themselves. And we just have to be resolute in maintaining that Israel needs to completely eliminate Hamas. So this is just um, uh, this is a, a small part of a much bigger operation. So I, I, I'm going to talk with Haviv Redigur at the bottom of the hour, a superb correspondent from the Times of Israel. We'll get his reaction. But I do want Americans to know about this biolab in California. It's extraordinary. I read your report during the break that you sent me. I cannot. I didn't know any of this. So tell people about this. There was a local building inspector in Reedley, California. This is a rural community of about 26,000 people close to Fresno who saw a hose sticking out of what was supposed to be an unoccupied building a year ago, went inside and saw individuals, most of whom were Chinese nationals, in lab coats surrounded by medical equipment, a thousand transgenic mice, which are mice that have been modified to mimic the human immune system and vials with uh, foreign Mandarin labels that we would eventually come to learn contained uh, Ebola, HIV, tuberculosis and many other dangerous pathogens. Notably, when the local officials called the FBI, the FBI refused to do anything because they said there was no WND connection. The CDC hung up on the local officials, and it wasn't until the local congressman, Jim Costa, applied pressure that the CDC finally sent a team out five months later, and even their team refused to test the – they refused to even test what was in a freezer labeled Ebola, and the whole thing was owned by a guy named Jesse Shu, who's a Chinese national, who's a fugitive, who came here illegally from Canada – fleeing a $330 million intellectual property claim theft against him. And he had a fake testing business where he had fake pregnancy test kits, fake COVID test kits, fake urinalysis test kits. And he was buying all these pathogens online. And Hugh, this is the real glaring vulnerability in our system. And by the way, this guy had connections to CCP United Front Work Department organizations. But you today could go online and buy a vial of MERS, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. We have no tripwires in place 
for pathogens like this and the federal government agencies that are supposed to help the local officials that are supposed to keep Americans safe failed in this regard. And it raises the question, how many other biolabs are there like this right now? And what are the connections to the Chinese Communist Party? In this case, we have someone who at a minimum was a transnational criminal, but certainly had troubling connections and in the past had done work on behalf of the Chinese government. That intellectual property uh, theft for which he was convicted was linked to the government's desire to develop infant milk formula after they had a shortage that killed hundreds of Chinese babies about a decade ago. So completely troubling situation. Hats off to the local officials, but the CDC has to do better going forward. This is I want to I want to pause. The special agent in charge of L.A. should be fired because that's the L.A. special agent district. Have you had a chance to ask Director Ray why the FBI, if it's true, by the way, I'm not sure it's true. If they got a call, why they did not respond to an alert, you know, see something, say something. What the heck does that mean? Unless you see a building inspector sees Ebola signs and a bunch of white coats in a lab that isn't permitted. What does see something, say something mean, Congressman Gallagher? I haven't had a chance to talk to him directly. I know they have our report, and I'm hoping that this stimulates a a conversation about how we can do better going forward. And by the way, Hugh, the, the only reason our committee got involved, the local officials asked us to subpoena them so that they could go on record with a lot of this stuff. And the former speaker, Kevin McCarthy, as well as Jim Costa, whose district it is, asked our committee to investigate. So I sent a team of investigators out there and we unearthed all of this troubling information that I fear would not have seen the light of day were there not congressional attention on it. So clearly at a minimum. We need the FBI to explain what happened or how the system failed in this case. We need the CDC. If the CDC is unwilling to have, let's say, a quick reaction force ready to go to test or help local officials deal with something like this so that they don't have to deal with what's called the abatement on their own, disposing of all this stuff, then they need to give that responsibility off to some other agency like Homeland Security who is willing to do that. And in the same way that if you want to buy pseudofedrin, uh, which has dual use for for meth, for for drug use, uh, you have to be registered so that we can track the purchases. I think the same principle has to apply to people you buying know, Chairman, dangerous patents. If, if uh, Dan Silva or C.J. Box, and C.J. Box, by the way, has a private Chinese lab in his latest thriller, if they started a thriller with the manufacture of a bioweapon on our soil so that it would be released from America into the world... I would send it back. You can't do that. We, that can't happen. I would say that's too. That's a bridge too far. Did we find out who was working there? Were they on green cards? Were they Chinese nationals? Were they American? Because you don't end up in Reedy. And I lived in California for 25 years. I don't know where Reedy is. You don't end up by Reedy by mistake. Uh, yeah, that's, that's right. Uh, Reedley's a metropolis, Hugh. Come on. Reedley. You have, you have big city vibes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, we, we know the initial, the, there was about six or seven people initially working in the facility. I want to say at least half of them were Chinese nationals. Obviously the owner was here illegally. I, I forget how many of the other employees were here illegally, but notably Jesse Shu, this criminal who, by the way, is so bold that even though he was, he, he's a, he's a fugitive. And even though he was under all this scrutiny, tried to sue this when there was no response from the federal government 
when there was no response at all and he felt like he could get away with this, he then tried to sue the city of Reedley for $50 million. He tripled down. This is, this is a, a complete rogue of a human being. He was here illegally under a fake name. He got linked up with an accountant who was another Chinese national with direct ties to the United Front Workers. Chairman, he's not a rogue. A, he's a spy. Yeah, let, let's just, you know, if you're here doing that on those conditions, you're not a rogue. You're not a mastermind criminal. You're an operative. Did the agency yes. get involved? Did anybody get involved? In this case, not till well after the fact, until there were congressional pressure. And that's my point. It shouldn't require the intervention of the local congressman, a congressional committee, in order for us to investigate things like this. And I hope this is a wake-up call because I fear – I was thinking about this yesterday, Hugh. If the president of the United States turned to the FBI director today and said, you know what? We need to find out how many other biolabs like this are in America – I'm not sure they would even know where to begin. I mean, we just don't have a database for any of this stuff. Chairman, have a great Thanksgiving. You've ruined mine. Well, I suppose that was the plan all along from the Packers fan, because the Browns at 7-3 are going to the playoffs and the Packers aren't. But you've ruined my Thanksgiving. Thank you, Chairman Mike. You have a blessed Thanksgiving. I'll be right back, America. Stay tuned on QQ at Inside the Beltway, not at home, watching the Browns. back america i'm hugh hewitt i want to remind you later today over at highly concentrated hugh on itunes my entire interview with haviv Redigur will be available from earlier in the show it will also be at my youtube channel because haviv was by uh, video as well and i'll include on that mary Catherine ham jim garrity i'll include chairman gallagher and my next guest uh, brian kilmeade brian joins me now good morning brian and congratulations on this teddy and booker t I found it fascinating. It's a very high hurdle for me to pick up a book about TR because I know a lot about TR, but I don't know much about Booker T. So before I get into the specifics, what inspired this book, Teddy and Booker T? Well, number one, I wanted to move up in time, and I just got out of the Civil War with the President of Freedom Fighter. But before I read about Frederick Douglass and David Blight's biography, and I, the first thing I do is read the biographies of the people, and I read up from slavery and you literally pick it up when Booker T. Washington was born a slave, nine years old, called to the plantation house, told by Union soldiers, you're free, and then goes back to his house where he slept on a dirt floor without shoes his entire life, one meal a day. If he was lucky, his mom hugging him and his brother in tears says, what do we do now? And you had me. And to think this guy became one of the most respected people in America at the time and known around the world. And his educational legacy lives on. And he ends up being a person that would attract presidents to speak at commencement address at Tuskegee. And instead of just getting rich and famous and giving speeches and being an activist, which was fine, not putting it down. All he did was educate people, a thousand in his class at a time, in a time in the Deep South, when a lot of people weren't looking at blacks and whites as equal. Jim Crow was raging. Poll taxes were everywhere. Lynchings were taking place. No justification there. And he said, let me change the perception of a generation and let it start with me. That got me. And then Teddy Roosevelt's all over the story. Uh, you, know, you did a great thing by alternating chapters. And the reason that's a great thing, if there's someone like me with TR who brings a lot to the table, you can just read every other chapter about Booker T and Washington. For example, I did not know how he came up with his last name until I read your book, Brian. You want to tell that story? 
Yeah, I mean, he had to come up with it. It was in class. He has no last name. He says, I'm just going to pick Washington. His stepfather was Washington. And get this, uh, you. Here's another story. Is that most people, if people want to take down Washington statue and Jefferson statue, do you know, like, the most common, when, when newly freed slaves had a chance to pick their last name, the most common name was Washington. They loved him. They looked up to him. He was he was the founder of their country, too. And that's what that's why he has no regrets about picking it. And glad he did. All right. Now, I want to go to the very end. I've got a bunch of questions and we've got limited time. So I want to get to them at the very end. You quote a Charles W. Anderson, who I had not known of. So I went and looked him up and turns out he's an African-American from Oxford, Ohio, home of Miami University. Bill Hammer ought to know this and talk to you about this. But he went from Oxford to New York City, where he's appointed a collector of revenues by T.R. after this uh, amazing dinner that you recount, uh, where T.R. makes Booker T. Washington a promise about putting blacks into office. And Charles Anderson says T.R. and Booker T. Washington were the two greatest men of their time in the white and black races. I, I don't even know where you found that quote, but it does sum up what America thought of them by the time they had both run their their races. You know what I did is I actually started, I wanted to validate my book. And I have to pitch it, even though I'm friendly with the publisher, have some success. I had to validate my book, and he was the one I pulled out. And I go, okay, now let me find out who he is. I did exactly what you just did. And I go, excellent. So I go, perfect. And that's how I did it forensically. And then I found the quote from Booker T. Washington, if I could rememorize it correctly. Uh, he said, aside from Lincoln, no one's done more for, uh, for, they would say Negro back then, we would say black, uh, for the black race in our country tried to do more than Teddy Roosevelt. And I go, there's my selling point. I have the words of Booker T. I have an expert in the time, African-American guy uh, in Anderson. Let me move forward with this. Now, I'm not telling you that you're going to read Teddy Roosevelt and love what all the things he said about race. In fact, I went to the Roosevelt Society. To, I went to Tweed, his great grandson, who knew his great grandmother, Teddy's wife, because she outlived him by a long time. And he said, yeah, he had blind spots. But Brian forged through it because there was more good than bad, but he was a person of his times. And that used to not be a big deal, but it's a big deal today because we want everybody to walk on water. Everyone's got to be perfect at all times. You got to be, you got to, whatever you said in, in 1901 has got to hold up in 2023. Oh, you're right, Brian. I could go find excerpts from the Lincoln Douglas debates that make Lincoln the, uh, the terrible racist evil person, but that's, you know, before the Civil War. Let me go back and name three people that I wrote as I take my notes. I go through your book. General Armstrong, four people, actually. General Armstrong, General and Mrs. Ruffner and Ms. Mackey. They are inspiring actors and supporting roles. And it made me remind it reminded me you never know when you're changing the trajectory of someone's life and what they're going to end up doing. Right, Brian? I mean, these people gave Booker mm -hmm. T. Washington a lift and an assist and confidence. And I'm glad you told their stories as well as his. You know what I had to go back and do? Look up the color of their skin. Because in Booker T. Washington didn't care. He would say, General Armstrong, I would say, he'd say, war hero. I'm thinking to myself, it's an officer. It's got to be white. I had to go back and look him up and get his picture. And that's how little it mattered to him. Mrs. Ruffner, white. Right? Ms. Mackey, white. Not that it mattered. They just took a great interest in this this black kid that had nothing, had a lot of gumption, a lot of drive, very little education, but there was a sense he wanted to learn and make something of himself. And I don't know how much time you have because I don't want to go over, but uh, you talk about Think and Grow Rich, Napoleon Hill. You talk about Norman Vincent Peale, Power 
uh, positive thinking, Anthony Robbins, about manifesting things in your head. It may be happening in your broadcasting career, your writing career, but he wanted to will himself to be something. He didn't even know the number at one eight. He's like, what is that? That's 18. That's the sack you have to fill up with salt. It's like, wow, what's a number? He got a dictionary, thought it was the best thing he ever could got in his life. And then when he finally gets to Mrs. Ruffner's house and out of the salt mines, she's supposedly mean. She's not mean. She wanted things done right. And then he taught him how to clean, how to be efficient, how to hold yourself, lose your regional accent. And then he goes, what do you want? He goes, what I would like, Mrs. Ruffner, is to learn to, to, to get an education. And they did. So guess what? To prove himself in Hampton College, he gets in there. He's a mess. He goes 400 miles on $12 and shows up, says, I can't let you in. And they say, OK, you keep coming back. So why don't you go clean this classroom? Guess who knows how to clean a classroom because of Mrs. Ruffner? She goes, who helped you with that? I want to watch you clean another. He cleans it. They clean the whole school. Says you can come back in during the day and clean. Uh, At night, you can go to school. I love your line, Brian. The best student teacher. Your line is, he hadn't applied. He simply arrived. I wrote that down. That was beautiful writing. There's also a sea captain along the way that lets him work for some food. I mean, there are a thousand heroes, and Booker T. Washington produces a thousand heroes, but I want to tell one story before we both run into hard breaks, and it's this. I had never heard of the Cotton Spaces and International Exposition in September of 1895. we got to cover that speech, and we got to cover his dinner with T.R. So you do both of those in the time you've got, Brian, because that is an amazing speech, I've never heard of that, and I can't imagine doing that in Atlanta, Georgia in 1895, and then we got to talk about the dinner. Well, you just set me up for the speech. The speech is perfect. Picture this. In the segregated South with Jim Crow raging, Booker T. Washington's emerging, running this school, making a difference. He shows up to a white audience and black audience and has to address both. He gets brief right before he goes up by someone who says, what are you doing? You giving that speech tomorrow? I'd get out of it. You can't win. But he did. Why? He said, listen, we're not going to bother you, but understand that we want a life too. We don't hate white people. Don't hate us. We're not going to get in your way, so don't get in ours. We're going to show you through our actions what we're capable of doing. Let's forget about the past and move forward. People were angered by that. They said, you're too accommodating. You should have called out the South, called out white people, called out the reactionary way they, they blew up Reconstruction. And he said, no, this is the country I'm in. This is the message I want to relay to help the greatest people possible. And do I have time for the White House speech? You do have. you got to tell the story of the dinner. You've got the photo in there, but not a lot of people will know about it. And they won't know the impact that it made. And you know this. The concession speech of John McCain referenced it. He said that one was. So this is goes to show you the sincerity of T.R. Teddy Roosevelt says, you know, on vice president, they meet. And then McKinley gets shot. He later dies. He becomes president. We find a letter that he wrote. Sorry, Booker T. I have to put off my visit to, to, to Tuskegee. I'm president now. So they finally said, when you're in town, come by. He finds out Booker T.'s in town. He can't text him. He sends a messenger over. It says, come see me for dinner with my family. And Booker T. has a slight hesitation. But how can I turn down the president? He goes, has a great time. They meet after. Somebody notices the guest book. Black Booker T. Washington eats with white president's family. The most raging, racist headlines you can imagine in almost every Southern newspaper happened after that. And they got blowback. Teddy stood up tall for a while. And then after a while, they stopped talking about it. In his last book, Booker T finally addressed it in detail. They worried about Tuskegee and their partnership. They had to be smarter about it. Mark Twain would later counsel when Teddy Roosevelt went up to him and said, did I make a 
mistake. He goes, it could have been better thought out. America wasn't ready for that. And I'm embarrassed that it wasn't, but I'm, I want to write it that it was then and how far we have come as a country. And now they've, um, John McCain said, instead of Booker T. Washington causing controversy as a guest, soon he goes, there'll be an African-American president that will be the host. That's and I'll close this way, Brian. I hope this gets optioned for a movie because I think Booker T. Washington is forgotten by America and you have done a great service in putting this book out Thank there you. because some people are going to notice Booker T. Washington. You have a great Thanksgiving, Brian. Thank you for this book. It's a tremendous addition to America's bookshelves. And you know what? It's accessible. Everyone's going to love it. Everyone's going to love it. Brian, have a great Thanksgiving. Thank you for reading it. I appreciate it. You too. My pleasure. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.